0: Well, I welcome uh, all of you today to worship at at all of our locations. Uh, Let me begin by asking you, have you ever faced a time in your life, a situation where you were really kind of desperate for a solution, for an answer? Well, if you've been on social media at all this week, you know that since Thursday, There's a particular dress that's made everybody desperate. Would you look at the screens right now at all of our locations? And you know that some people see this dress as being blue and black. And others see that dress as being white and gold. And it's amazing. It's dividing couples and friends and families right down the middle. People are desperate for an answer to this. Now... I figure we need to settle this once and for all with a show of hands. All right? Now, let's see. I wonder how many of you, and we're going to vote at all of our locations, all of our congregations are going to vote. Would you just slip your hand up loud and proud, just put it up high, if you know that that dress is blue and black? Would you just put your hand up, please? All right, thank you. Thank you. All right. Put your hands down. And all right now, you white and gold people, this is your chance. If you're convinced that dress is white and gold, would you slip your hand up? Thank you so much. We obviously solved that, didn't we? Now, I just want to say it's pretty clear to me who the spiritual people are because that dress is clearly blue and black and... And those of you who see it that way are clearly going to have front rows in heaven. I just want to say that before we go on. But isn't it kind of funny that something as silly as that can literally bring out a sense of almost frustrating desperation in people. But you know, it would kind of be nice if life was that trivial all the time, wouldn't it? Because the truth of the matter is, some of us today... Are going through situations that are much more desperate and we feel hopeless at times. Perhaps you're in a marriage that's really struggling. And maybe, maybe you're even in an abusive situation, and your husband sometimes takes out his anger on you, and you try to cover it with makeup, but the scars are there, the bruises are there, and If people in your row right now knew the desperation and hopelessness that you feel, their hearts would break for you. Perhaps you have a child who's kind of going off the rails, and maybe you just heard this week that your daughter, your precious daughter, is pregnant, an unexpected pregnancy, and you don't know where to turn. She doesn't know what to do, and it's created a desperate situation. Maybe uh, your workplace is filled with turmoil. I, I know a number of people that right now just absolutely hate going to work. They despise their job because there's tension and pressure. And every day is like a pressure cooker and you feel desperate. But times are tough and jobs are hard to find and you don't know where to turn. Most people I know experience desperation at one time or another. Henry David Thoreau put it like this, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I want to say to you, if you've never been there, trust me, one day you probably will. And the thing that everyone in that situation wants to know is, is there a word from the Lord for me? They don't want uh, some message on transactional analysis or silly jokes from Reader's Digest. You want to know, does God have a word for me today? And the good news is, he does. And it's a word of hope. It's a word of transformation. It's a word where God wants to give you abiding peace in your life. So let's look. Had a story today from Luke's Gospel, and I want us to see here from chapter eight two desperate people. If you're following along in your notes, you'll see there a section where it says two desperate people. Now these two people, as you're going to see, are very different, but they have one thing in common: they were distraught, desperate, with no place to turn. Desperate person number one is Jairus, who was a ruler in the synagogue. Now, what was his situation? He was desperate because his precious 12-year-old daughter is sick and on the verge of death. Let's pick the story up in verse 41. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, I can't prove this, but I imagine that Jairus' sophisticated friends, other leaders in the community and leaders in the synagogue... I I can imagine that they probably thought Jairus was flipping his lid at this point. I mean, how could he become so desperate that he would go to this itinerant faith-healing preacher to try to seek help? But Jairus didn't care what their opinions were. He loved his daughter dearly. He would give his own life in an instant for hers, and he was desperate. Those of you who are parents know that few things will panic you more than a child that's sick and you don't know what to do and you don't know what's wrong. And you see your baby getting worse and worse and you'll do anything at that point for an answer. Jairus had to do something. Obviously, his daughter was about to die, and he'd heard about Jesus, this miracle-working prophet who was roaming the countryside and preaching and healing people. He, He didn't care what other people thought. He needed an answer. And Jesus was so touched by his need and his hopelessness that he immediately headed toward Jairus' home. But I want you to see now, with that little introduction to Jairus, on the way, they were interrupted by a woman who was also desperate. Desperate person number two in our story. The hemorrhaging woman. Verse 42 reads, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. The popular writer Max Lucado, in talking about this woman, wrote, This woman's chronic menstrual disorder would be difficult for any woman of any era. But for a Jewess, nothing could be worse. No part of her life was left unaffected. Sexually, she could not touch her husband. Maternally, she could not bear children. Domestically, anything she touched in the house was considered unclean by the Jewish law of the day. Spiritually, she was not allowed to enter the temple to worship. She was physically exhausted and socially ostracized. Warren Wiersbe is a popular commentator, and he points out the contrast between these two individuals And he does this to show the variety of people who came to Jesus for help. And I'll read to you some of the things Wearsby says. Here was a man interceding for his child and a woman hoping to find help for herself. The man's name is given, the woman's name is anonymous. Jairus was wealthy, a leading citizen, but the woman was a lowly person and was broke because she had, spent all of her money trying to get well. Mark's gospel said, in fact, that she'd spent all she had on doctors, and she wasn't getting any better. I, I find it kind of humorous. It just shows you my sick humor that Mar, uh, Luke, rather, who was a doctor, a physician by training, doesn't include that little detail in his gospel, that she'd spent all of her money on doctors, but instead was getting worse. I find that kind of funny. Jairus had been blessed with 12 years of joy with his daughter, and now he might lose her. The woman had experienced 12 years of misery because of her affliction, and now she was hoping to get well. Jairus' need was public. The woman's need was hidden. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. The woman's hemorrhaging made her unclean. She could not even enter the synagogue to worship. Jairus' concern was life-threatening, but the woman's problem was not quite as serious. I hope you can see the contrast, the variety of people who came to Jesus for hope and for help. But here's what this woman found, and I want to press this point to everyone listening to me right now all over the capital region and beyond. This woman discovered that no matter who you are, Jesus cares for you. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You may not even know why you're here today. You you, you, you may not even know what it is inside that's drawing you and making you explore and seek for answers and for Christ. But I want to say to you, Even though you may doubt his love, God loves you just as you are this very day. And he cares for you, especially if your heart is broken by despair. Well, this woman probably thought, seeing all these crowds practically crushing Jesus, he's far too busy for me. Uh, Maybe, maybe I can just touch his clothing. Now, I don't want to make too much of this. But I personally believe, while some commentators dismiss her act as superstition, I believe that she was already on the way to true faith in Christ as the Messiah. You see, there was a belief in her culture, in this Jewish culture, that when Messiah did come, he would have healing power even in the tassels of his robe. And this says to me that she was already believing That Jesus was the one promised by God, the long-awaited Messiah. And God honored her faith, whatever her reasons were. Verse 44 reads, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And then Jesus asked a curious question in verse 45, who, who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. It's almost like Peter's going, Hashtag, duh, Jesus, what? I don't get that question. What, what do you mean? I mean, this is a mob scene, Man. Mm, this would be like you going to the Times Union Center for a basketball game. The place is packed to the rafters. It's a championship game. It comes down to a buzzer-beating shot, so nobody leaves early. The final shot, pandemonium. And then immediately, because everyone is waited to the very end, the crowd rushes out into those aisles and begins to make their way toward the exits. And if you turned around in that moment and said, who touched me? You'd be silly. Somebody go, is this your first time here? Don't you know the way this works? You're going to get touched a lot around here, buddy. You know, you're going to get jostled by the crowd. And, but Jesus said in verse 46, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, some people have made a lot of that. And what it means... The word is pretty simple. It's just the normal word for power, dunamis. Dunamis has gone out from me, power. And I would want to say to all of you who are in the healing occupations, whatever it might be, a doctor, a nurse, some sort of uh, you know, community servant, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're a paid professional, whether you're a counselor or a therapist of some kind or a life coach or if you're in the ministry, if you're leading a small group and pouring your heart and soul into helping the people in your group, if you're working in a ministry at the church or wherever, I want to say to you this, please be aware of the energy that it takes to be involved in helping people. It's astounding, actually. Folks who've been involved in other types of occupations and, and maybe kind of transition into a ministry position are usually amazed because they find themselves drained emotionally and spiritually. Power, power, energy goes out from you because it really wears on you over time to kind of carry the emotional pe- freight of other people's uh, problems. But let me raise a curious question here, at least it's curious to me. Why did Jesus insist that this woman go public with this? I mean, it says she was immediately healed. Surely Jesus knew that. And yet, why a healing is a healing whether it's public or not, right? Why did Jesus insist that this woman identify herself? Well, I think there's at least two good reasons for that. And I think there's an application also for us here. I think one reason is he wanted to be sure that her faith was not in his garment, but in him. He didn't want her to have the mistaken notion that somehow this was a magic robe. The Bible says in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. People say, well, just have faith, brother. But we don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in our own ability, in ourselves. I may shock some of you good church people when I say, we don't even have ultimate faith in the church. We don't have faith in some emblem of the cross. We don't even have ultimate faith. Our faith is not in the Holy Bible to save us. Although we think it's God's inerrant, infallible word. Let's make no mistake about this. Our faith is in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and who one day is coming back again to receive us to himself. That's where our faith is. We've got to be clear on that, and I think Jesus wants to be sure that this precious woman is clear. But I think there's a second reason, and, and that is that I think Jesus highlighted her healing here and had the woman come forward because I think it would increase Jairus' faith, and he was about to really need that. Because verse 47 reads, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. And she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. You know what I noticed today? It's kind of curious. I meet a good number of people who want to be Touched by Jesus. They want want to be healed. They want to be helped. They want God to get involved in their life. They want an encounter with the Lord. Maybe even they, they want to be saved by the Lord. They want him to come in and rescue them from their desperate plight. But they don't want to be public about it. Maybe they're afraid of ridicule. Maybe they're afraid that family will turn on them belittle them. Maybe they're afraid that if their faith in Jesus became known that it would lead to turmoil in their relationships. I don't know, but I just want to say this to you. If you're one of those persons who's just kind of hoping that maybe, just maybe, you can be a 007 secret agent Christian, you know, where only your hairdresser knows for sure, you know, where you really stand, Jesus won't let you have your private healing for very long. He's going to call you out of the crowd. Jesus said, if you confess me before people, I'm going to confess you before. But if you disown me before people, I'm going to disown you before my Father who's in heaven. Every time Billy Graham preached in a massive stadium or arena around the world, when it came time for that public altar call, he would always, and I mean always, make this statement. He would say, You might be wondering, Billy, why do you call us publicly? And he would always answer the same way because Jesus hung on the cross publicly for you. And if you're ashamed of him, he says, I will be ashamed of you. So let me ask you, seriously, have you gone public with your faith? You're just kind of one of those clandestine Christians. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, apparently, because he didn't want his cronies in the Sanhedrin to know. And the last words Jesus spoke to Nicodemus were these, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. He who lives by the truth comes into the light. And by the way, when Jesus was crucified, Nicodemus was only one of two individuals who came forth and was willing to go public with their identification with Christ. He took his body off the cross and helped Joseph of Arimathea to bury him. This woman wanted to go unnoticed, but Jesus wouldn't let her do that. He stopped in his tracks and he forced her to go public with her healing. William Barclay wrote, She was a poor, unimportant sufferer, ignored by the crowd, but Jesus treated her as if she was the only person in the world. That is so impressive. And he says to her in verse 48, Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The word daughter there is the word for, uh, it's like an endearing word. It's a word of great affection. In fact, it's a hapex, what they call in Greek. It's the only time Jesus uses this particular word, this word of affection for someone. He was so moved by this woman's plight. Someone wrote, to the loved, a word of affection is a morsel. But to the loved starved, a word of affection can be A feast. And Jesus left this dear woman with a banquet, a feast of mercy and love. But while all this is going on with the woman, I want you now to try to put yourself in the sandals of Jairus for a moment. Hey, his daughter is still on the verge of death. He has rushed out to find Jesus because he knows time is precious and limited, And now Jesus has stopped to give attention to this nameless woman who just happened to touch him on the hem of his garment. Jairus has got to be going crazy by now. He is anxious to get to his house. But then comes the news he dreads the most. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Did he crumble to the ground in grief? We don't know. I wish we knew how we responded. But those who come to talk to him are saying, don't go into denial. Come on, it's real. She's gone It's time to face reality and quit hoping for a miracle, Jairus. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And Jairus still had enough hope, enough faith, to allow Jesus to accompany him to his home, believing that even though the word was definite, Believing that somehow Jesus could turn this desperation around. And by the way, there's a little lesson in that for us. Some of you right now may feel so desperate, but here's the question. Are you going to distance yourself from Jesus in your desperation? Are you going to allow him to accompany you even though you don't understand it, even though you don't yet know or believe or see how it could possibly change? Are you going to let Jesus accompany you through this? Are you going to say, what's the point? There's no hope. Your miracle begins... When you're willing to open your heart to Christ and his miracle-working power. And that seems to me to be what Jairus is doing here, even in the lowest point of his life. Verse 51 says, When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone in with him except Peter, James, and John. Those were his closest disciples. And the father's, child's father and mother. I think he wanted to protect them from the crowd with their leering eyes. And wanted to give them some privacy. Verse 52 reads, Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Now, keep in mind that they paid people in those days to mourn at funerals, to weep and wail. They were public mourners. The psychology, by the way, behind that, was that that would allow the family to grieve without being so noticed. Because everyone would be noticing these other people. They would be conspicuous. The family would be inconspicuous in their group. That was the psychology. And it may seem strange to you they would do such a thing, but we pay people today to get emotional on infomercials and to laugh and weep and get excited on sitcoms on TV. They paid people to mourn. And Jesus said to the wailers, stop wailing, she's not dead, but asleep. Jesus often, or the writers of Scripture often, referred to death as sleep. In the book of Acts, when Stephen died, it says he went to sleep. When Lazarus died, in John 11, Jesus responded, he's just asleep. In First Thessalonians 4, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of those who are asleep. A little girl asked her dad what it would be like to die. And the father gulped at the question and said, well, hon, you know, sometimes when you've gone to sleep in the back seat of the car late at night when we were driving home from somewhere. And, and, and you know, in the next morning you would just kind of wake up and you'd be in your room because I'd, I'd carried you in the house. I think it's going to be like that when a person dies. You go to sleep and you wake up in the Father's house in your own room. Death for the believer, says Jesus, will be like falling asleep. Resurrection for Jesus is as easy as rousing someone from the dead. And so Jesus said to these professional mourners, stop. But verse 53 says, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. You know what? When you express your hope in life after death to some of your friends or family or coworkers, they may may smile at you as though you're some benign idiot. Oh, isn't that cute? What a quaint little belief that there's actually life after death. Because you see, to many cynical people today, death is a hopeless end. But to the follower of Christ, death is just the beginning, it's an endless hope. So Jesus says, Stop wailing. In verse 54, he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, why would Jesus say don't tell anybody? I mean, wouldn't this be a good testimony? I mean, my goodness, she could write a book. My goodness, she could create a video. She could be on CNN. She could be on every talk show imaginable and give her story. Wouldn't this stoke the faith of people? Why would he say, don't tell? Well, scholars believe that when Jesus did a miracle and then said to people, now don't tell anybody, he was saying that because he knew his time had not yet come. In fact, just months later from this, when he he brings Lazarus back from the dead, the enemies of Jesus were so infuriated by that, they immediately started in motion a plan to kill him. And so Jesus' purpose here in saying this is he didn't want those people who misunderstood his mission to get out of control and force his hand prematurely. This is sometimes, by the way, referred to as the messianic secret whenever Jesus says, don't tell anybody because he doesn't want this divine timetable to in any way be forced. Well, as we move toward our close today, I want to say to you, there's one important lesson from today's story that I'd like for you to take away. When you are desperate, reach out to Jesus Christ and keep trusting him even through disaster. You know, I don't know where you are on your journey of faith, but I want to say this to you. Sometimes, just like this woman, I believe it's hard for people who are trying to reach out and get to Jesus. It's hard for them to get to him because of the church crowd. You may look at people around you and go, oh, she raises her hand when she, hands when she worships. She's so full of faith, so passionate. Oh, I know about him. He really lives it out. I could never be as mature as that guy. And you feel intimidated by people because you may think they're more spiritual. You could never be like that. Or, on the other hand, entirely, you may have trouble reaching out to Jesus because of the duplicity and the hypocrisy and the two-facedness you see in professing Christians. And I get it. Now, I happen to believe that Christians are some of the finest people in the world, But we are very imperfect. And I would simply say to you today, if you're reaching out to Jesus, don't let the crowd prevent you. Don't let the crowd keep you from reaching out. Only he can bring hope and healing into your life. Now, folks, as we continue to reach out through grace and action... We've been highlighting every week this message of hope for people who are desperate. And today I want to introduce you yet to one other partner, the Unity House. You're going to hear a brief video right now from Christine Nealon. Now Larry Van Ostren of our staff recently sat down with Christine Nealon of Unity House. Unity House, by the way, is in Troy, and they're doing a ton to help relieve human suffering. In fact... They've gone out of their way in this Grace in Action initiative to accommodate additional serving opportunities for us. It's a a wonderful partnership we have with them. In fact, they've provided more serving opportunities by far than any other of our partners, 250. And by the way, 239 out of those 250 are already committed to. There's only 11 slots left at Unity House. So I I want you to listen now. Let's listen together to this brief video.
1: Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you share with us what the Unity House is all about and how it got started? Unity House is an organization that was started in 1971. We provide services out of a number of different buildings, but today we're sitting in a building called the Front Door. This building is called the Front Door because it's really the front door to all the services that Unity House has to offer. So in 1971, a nun and two uh, friars came together, and they were really frustrated about what they were seeing, how poverty was affecting their community in Troy and beyond, and they wanted to move beyond the walls of the church and this group of three very passionate people uh, came together and opened the doors and said what do people need we're here we want to help so we have uh, programs in four service areas we have our domestic violence programming where we work to create safe communities and we help men and women who are victims of domestic violence to recover and build strong lives we also have our child focused programming unity sunshine preschool provides children who are typically developing and then children who have special needs with a really diverse growth opportunity both in a classroom setting uh, we actually have four uh, centers as well as in the home we provide supports through physical therapy occupational therapy speech therapy things like that our third program area is in our housing and support services That's a program that really helps individuals who have a mental health background or an addictions background that has prevented them from maintaining their housing. And so case managers work one-on-one with individuals who have experienced these challenges to have safe, affordable housing and to look towards the future as being more stable. And then finally, we have community resources, which is represented in this building. This uh, series of programs really helps individuals connect with food, clothing, shelter, and dignity. These are really just the basics that people deserve as human beings and uh, we work really hard to make sure that people have those needs met. We have a ton of opportunities to engage uh, volunteers and that's what I love to do. I love to take people from the community who might not have normally met out on the streets and find ways for them to connect. So these opportunities include uh, work in our food pantry, uh, doing food drives, um, helping individuals uh, complete intakes so that we know where people are coming from and what kind of services they need. Uh, We also have opportunities in our store called ReStyle We're really passionate about sustainability in our communities because if we're really working to fight poverty, we are going to uh, work towards having more sustainable environments. So we provide a great opportunity for clothing to be repurposed and reused, and we sell that clothing in our store, but that's a lot of work, and we need a lot of volunteers to help us sort the clothing and uh, hang it, tag it, price it, and display it. So that's an area that we need a lot of help with. Um, We also have a Bethany at Unity Community Meals program, where 365 days of the year we serve breakfast and lunch. We help so many people in so many ways, and then they help us in return. We oftentimes are most rewarded when we see the exchange between the people who are seeking help and the people who are providing it. so often we see that line between the person who has the information and the person who needs it disappear. And that happens when we build safe and transparent relationships.
0: It's awesome stuff. Now, we are so stoked because your response to this church-wide food drive has been off the charts. I want you to see some pictures of just some of the food that is collecting at our various locations. Here at Saratoga, you can see a shot of some of the staff there. And by the way, I'm impressed in all these pictures at how organized the food is. I was expecting to See a, a big pile of food, just like it had been dumped out of a dump truck or something. But no, it's already taking shape. It's already being organized. This is Saratoga. This is Greenbush. You can see all the food there. Just a snapshot from this past week. And then we have Half Moon. They've kind of got the heavenly perspective, looking down Half Moon. And then, of course, this is Latham. And this is, as you know, our last week to collect Food for this food drive, and we're going to fill the pantries of 10 of our partners. I want you to know that just last week, we had 4,469 items brought. You can see what that amounts to related to the attendance, and that means that cumulatively for these two weeks so far, we have had 6,600, that is exact, 6,600 items for a Average of 1.47 items per person. Let's slam dunk it this week. Let's blow it away as we make a difference for hungry people around our area. Now you may be wondering, what about those serving opportunities, those 700 serving opportunities? How are those going? Well, as of this moment, 684 of those have already been filled. We still have 16. And uh, I would urge you to go to that website and snap up some of those opportunities. Let's complete all 700 of these. And then here's my final word of encouragement to you. Remember, this coming Friday and Saturday, March 6 and 7, are our first opportunities to actually serve. These are our first two serving days. So if you signed up, be sure you have it on your calendar so that you can show up. At the appropriate time, at the appropriate place. Our partners are counting on us, folks. Some of them have gone far out of their way to provide additional opportunities at, for us to be able to help and make a difference. And here's my final word as you go, go with the right attitude, go with a smile on your face. Go in a gracious spirit. Be kind. Be considerate. Remember, serving is not about us, right? Amen? It's about others. And above all, go with a spirit of flexibility. I have never, ever gone on a mission trip or any kind of service day where it turned out exactly the way I thought it would in my mind. Be flexible. Don't get bent out of shape if you end up doing something a little different than you thought, okay? Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about others. It's about the people we're serving. So here's the final word. I say to those of you who may be feeling hopeless and desperate today, reach out to Jesus. But please hear this part. I do not want you to have any illusions about what that might involve, that that's going to be some easy road. In fact, do you know the most shocking thing to me about this amazing story? When Jairus reached out to Jesus, did you see it? At first, things got worse, not better. And you may be praying and reaching out to Jesus with all your might and you may get a report back that the cancer is continuing. You may lose a job. You may continue to have frustration in your relationships. Hear me, faith in God is not the belief that he will do what you want immediately. It is the firm conviction that he will do what is right ultimately. And you keep reaching out to Jesus because he is already reaching out to you. Father, thank you that you would use people like us to make a difference. Thank you for these opportunities and the ones that come to us every day in the form of people who are in need, who are hurting, and who may be hopeless. Help us to understand their desperation and help us to see how you can use us to bring hope. Help us to offer a word of encouragement, an act of kindness. Help us to get involved in a way where you can begin to change their life from the inside out. Thank you that you would allow us to be your partners. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.